Hi, and welcome to this week's podcast with Sean and Malika as they take us into uncharted waters uh, as we learn more about seaweed farming and what it takes to build a business underwater. Welcome to this week's podcast. And with us are two of the three musketeers uh, taking us on a journey into seaweed. Uh, we've got uh, Sean and Malitha with us in the studio. And our missing friend, of course, is... Uh, Dasun. Dasun is not with us today, but uh, his, hopefully his voice and presence will be shared with you guys as well. Um, Sean, Malitha, it'll be interesting to start with uh, your journey in terms of the entrepreneurial journey, right? How the three of you came together. Uh, why did you all think about venturing or creating a venture uh, related to seaweed? Uh, how, did, how did that come about? Yeah, thanks for the intro, Arj. Um, so actually, it's a really interesting story, to be honest. Actually, me, Malik and Dasun, we have known each other for actually more than more than literally 18 plus years. What is yeah, it now? Yeah, I think it's about, around, around about 20 this year. So wow. yeah. <laughs> it's so, been a while. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's kind of like where it started, really uh, being kind of very passion hungry to find something innovative. And not only that, something impactful that we can really create ourselves as a group uh, of individuals that are just aspiring to do something great, right? So, yeah, I think, you know, uh, the crazy part was, you know, since we knew we, we knew each other literally since preschool, right? And, you know, we always want to do something. I remember one story Dasun told us, you know, he wanted to go f find the Mongolian death worm, right? <laughs> yeah. In Mongolia. <laughs> we were very adventurous from yeah. a young age, so... <laughs> I think that spirit was still with us throughout all those years, and we always want to do something meaningful. We were always kind of hungry for the next big thing, right? So, and that's when, you know, one night, you know, I made kind of a habit... Every night, I'd watch a piece of content or something where I could learn something at the business, why startups fail or something, you know, something like that. And that's when, you know, I came across this video. It was about seaweed, right? And, you know, the seaweed revolution and, you know, how this is going to be the next big thing and all of that. And that's when I called Dasun up that night. And I was like, hey, dude, did you see this thing uh, about, you know, seaweed? And I was like, hey, I saw that video too. And, you know, that's kind of the moment where we were like, okay, why don't we get into this, you know, and really look at, is there a possibility to do it here? And how can we really do this? Is there really an opportunity here? And from that day, you know, we took one year of doing research, going to Jaffna, going to these communities, and, you know, seeing what we can do, and, you know, how can we do it different? How can we do it in our own way? And that's when we also learned a lot about, you know, the struggles of these communities, especially in Mana and Jaffna, the coastal communities, they have been struggling, especially more recently. Because one thing is tourism is a huge uh, aspect of the income. On top of that, it's fishing. Those are the yeah. two primary yeah. ones, uh, honestly. So both of them have been affected. So one thing is definitely tourism. You know, everyone knows how badly tourism has been affected. On top of that, the interesting part is how fishing has been affected. You know, the overfishing is a huge problem, especially with the, you know, uh, the Indian fishermen coming in as well. Yeah. That just, you know, further burdens to that problem. So even fishing is not becoming viable. And even other sources of, you know, for example, sea cucumber is another huge popular source uh, of income. 
But the thing is, it's not sustainable right now because Sri Lanka hasn't mastered the technology of, you know, hatcheries. So we literally take the sea cucumbers population from the wild and we've been doing it so extensively, the wild population has been affected. So a lot of these farms, you know, if you go to Jaffna, you'd see these huge plots of, you know, sticks around. These are all sea cucumber farms, right? And most of them, unfortunately, are actually empty. Right. So that's when we realized that this business could be the perfect thing because it's regenerative. You know, you could take 100 grams of seaweed of Capophycus and it could turn into, you know, 100 tons, you know. So it's completely regenerative. And it was like that perfect thing to bridge the gap in between, Malika, right? Exactly. And I think in this case, when you think of the financial possibility for these uh, communities to cultivate seaweed as a income source that's not only regenerative but also the fact that it's able to uh, sort of provide a very short-term harvest cycle and a potential income source on a very regular basis is what we really uh, ensure that our farmers can learn from us as well by providing the ne- necessary training and the infrastructure needed for them to really understand the potential of this industry. As you can imagine, not many people know about it yet, and that's why there's a lack of sort of community incentive to do it. But as we are the forefront of making sure that we can uh, assure our farmers that this is something that they can look forward to. So, uh, Sean, uh, Malita, the seaweed, obviously, for these coastal communities, they're familiar with it. it. It's been part of their daily life, but never really seen or understood as a product that could be farmed quite effectively under the right conditions, obviously. And we, we'll get to that as well. We'll love to understand that a little bit more. Uh, but it's it's a lost ingredient because, again, it's something that it's abundant but completely not understood as a potential real solid source of uh, income. Yeah, Arj. So the, actually the crazy thing is it might be a lost ingredient here for us, but it's not a lost ingredient in the outside world. You know, uh, it's a huge industry. It's a massive industry in Indonesia. The same species we are growing uh, gives over one million jobs. And this is just one species. The species we are working with, one million jobs. And it makes up more than 50% of fisheries, aquaculture. So imagine that And Indonesia is huge. So to be the majority of their fisheries, aquaculture industry itself speaks a lot. And just a, a million jobs is also crazy. So, but in Sri Lanka, you know seaweed has never been seen in kind of that light you know people are trying to do it you know even the government has implemented programs but I feel like the efforts maybe are kind of misdirected I think there should be a proper systematic way to do it you know farmers uh, are given subsidies and uh, you know opportunities like that but I feel it's mismanaged in a way so that's why it's never really picked up because you know farmers would maybe take up seaweed farming but then you know maybe lack of training lack of knowledge the area isn't right so if they don't get the yields and the results they want you know they let it go after a while uh, you know that's kind of the sad thing here I think again it's also to do with the initial capital investment required for the proper infrastructure to cultivate seaweed in itself there has been this sort of uh, mismanagement within the institutions within Ministry of Fisheries as well to really understand how to uh, sort of deploy this infrastructure in a manner that allows these farmers to then uh, sort of cultivate it themselves. Yeah, I guess it's not enough to just give farmers seedlings no. and uh, some basic training. There probably needs to be a lot more, I don't know if the right word is hand-holding, but, but real follow-up and follow-through 
Yeah. To really help them to become true farmers of, of seaweed, right? Exactly. Either through an institutional level or within entre- entrepreneurial efforts such as ourselves to sort of guide them in that direction. Right. So. Um, let's talk about, you You mentioned uh, the species that uh, y'all are focused on, Capophycus. Why Capophycus versus any other, you know, uh, potential uh, seaweed species? Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons for that. So one thing is the location. So there are cold water seaweed species and there's warm water seaweed species, right? So, you know, there's like Saccharina, Japonica. Those are like another popular species. So, but they only grow in uh, cold water and that's the seaweed everyone knows. So whenever we even talk about our business, we're like, hey, we, we are, you know, doing seaweed. They're like, oh, I love sushi, <laughs> you know? But uh, this is a different, completely different species. But this species has, is, I think, equally as important or actually more important because this uh, species, Capophycus aloverzi, is used in over 250 applications. So it's used as a thickening emulsifier. It's found in your ice cream. You know, if you go look at your Highland ice cream at home and you look at the back, it says E407A. And that's, you know, uh, Capophycus. That's the seaweed. Uh, that's based off the seaweed, right? So there's so much applications for it. And if you're talking about other auxiliary, re, uh, you know, other use cases that are coming up with, such as bioplastics, you know, fertilizer. So there's a ton of applications here. So it's not All of niche. the single uh, uh, species. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's not even niche. It's a huge industry. Actually, you know, uh, you know, h- hundreds, thousands of metric tons, millions, you know, is actually being harvested just of this species right. uh, to produce uh, carrageenan as well. That's the thing that's used in most foods. Okay. And uh, where can we take it in terms of the value add, right? So it could go into all of these applications, we're growing it. What uh, can you maybe take me through the stages? Okay, so you grow it, then it's uh, harvested after. Uh, what's the cycle? Um, you know, what's the ideal harvesting, and then what happens? I guess. Yeah. So what we do is we actually we want to improve the quality as well and show and highlight Sri Lanka can produce such high quality, uh, you know, product uh, of uh, Capophycus. So we actually keep a, a cycle for about fifty days. So normally, typically, some countries do thirty because they want to just do it fast as they can but we are very stringent on making it 50 so we can get the best quality and you know it's shown us amazing results so we have actually seen uh, some of our carrageenan reports are actually about sometimes up to 80% above the market uh, industry average standard so that's a testament to you know the quality and what we are building here, but also a testament to how good Sri Lanka is for seaweed farming. If you are getting such you know things above even in industry standard, right, Malik? Yeah. So then why can't we? Right. This is the exact opportunity for us to identify which specific locations within the northern province region has the largest potential to have this value add, and then this incentivizes providing a dynamic sort of farming model where we can ensure that we can utilize this formula for cultivation across multiple other sites uh, within the region. And I'm glad you asked again in terms of the value addition that um, we're looking into. So one of the many uh, avenues that we just sort of untapped was uh, producing this uh, CMOS gel. And itself, it's very sort of compact in its advantage within the market because as you can see, the plethora of nutritious benefits that come out of it, 92, right? Nutrition's out of the 109 essential minerals that are required are in this gel. It's improving in like reduced inflammatory. It ensures that in this case that we have uh, not only a product that can be used uh, as a sort of superfood, but it can be supplementary across any sort of product that you use, be it your cereal, 
uh, be it uh, your smoothies. Um, and we see this market already expanding within the U.S., within Europe, uh, and we want to be the first within Sri Lanka. Too. So again, it's another almost a superfood yeah. that could be added to a host of uh, host of things that we consume. Exactly, and we can see it long term being implemented within the culture of Sri Lankan food itself, right? Why not use it, you know, to within uh, the many like grains of uh, sort of uh, breakfast meals that we have today, right? With your mungeta, with your akadala, you know, why not porridge? Porridge, exactly. Let's embed it into the culture of Sri Lanka. That would be a revolution, right? To exactly. get people really thinking about that consumption, and not not in the Japanese form of you know immediate dried, or, no, but in a, in a in form a like you're talking about, uh, where it yeah. can be blended yeah, into a number of things. We yeah. yeah, this would make every Sri Lankan food a superfood, yeah. right? Yeah, and it's so. I mean, it's already really popular. So this, if you're talking about the value addition, kind of we are focusing on, which is CMOS. A gel. It's it's been blowing up recently in the U.S. in Europe. You know, for example, one of my friends actually just sent me uh, a CMOS uh, droplet in the droplet form. So uh, a company. I think it was done by the Kardashians, right? So it's I think it was Courtney Kardashian, right? So they have a new company and they were doing the CMOS in the this in a liquid. A beauty, yeah, uh, it's for solution? yeah. You yeah. just you know put two drops into your food and it gives all the benefits, right? And it's the same product we are doing essentially. It's just the form factor right. of the CMOS gel. Uh, there's another other company that was on Shark Tank and they were doing about more than the company was valued at th- more than three million right and they grew so fast in a year I think they made uh, their projected sales figures to get to that three million valuation in less than a year and I think they are their market share like you know it was I think 80 percent they increased their growth in one year so which is crazy so you know there is a demand there for this demand, even yeah. in the global yeah. stage so that's why we are interested in s- the C uh, Moss gel and the other reason I think we're interested in, because the other valuation, it's just, it's a part of our strategy. Because if we're doing carrageenan, it's not possible. It's not feasible right now because we are not at the scale of supply. We right. need 100 tons plus. Right. But this product is the opposite. We can, at this even current moment, we can start developing this product right, right. now. Right. Yeah. So higher value, lower volume, right? Uh, higher value added product in lower volume, yes. which is something that probably suits the scale uh, for for Sri Lanka, exactly. um, you all mentioned location, right, as, as key uh, for growing seaweed. What uh, makes a location ideal for seaweed cultivation? Yeah, so there are a couple of factors, and this is the crucial thing people don't understand. I think. Because, you know, sometimes when you just look at the research, right, that's what happened to us. When we first went online and Googled, there's like, there's no fertilizer, there's nothing. They're like, okay, you just grow. Just put some lines (laughs) in the water, uh, you know, tie the seaweed and, you know, it's done. That's what, you know, how it looks. But it's way hard, harder than that. And I think we learned the hard way because we also did get our hands burned, especially in the start. You know, I think it's good to talk about that too. The first time we tried to set up a farm, actually, it didn't work out. It completely failed, even though all the parameters looked like it was good. And that's what really got us right because we check the temperature so some of the important factors is temperature you know that's highly critical if it goes beyond a certain buffer it's the seaweed gets bleached and you know it'll immediately die right the salinity is another one because these all influence stress because if the seaweed gets stressed there's a disease called isis it's a very serious uh, disease if it's not controlled where the seaweed essentially uh, goes gets so stressed it l- releases these compounds into the water which attacks bacteria to attack the surface of the cell wall and then you know, it causes cellular lysis of the cell and destruction of the cell. So, you know, that's the main thing we're trying to avoid with these factors. So, yeah, and then the problem that happened to us is was actually the water flow because it was near a bay 
so even the salinity though we checked it at this time it looked good depending on the flow of the water and the time that changes uh, that right. changed everything and you know that that's where the first time we made a mistake you know and then you know it was a huge mistake because it did cost us our initial run and yeah. also cost us time so the second time you know we decided to kind of do everything in house in the se- in a way of at least understanding the knowledge yeah. learning about it thoroughly and doing it kind of ourselves and even when we talk with our experts you know we want to translate that knowledge by ourselves and make a educated decision by ourselves so the three big critical factors that you talked about uh, temperature salinity water and flow, flow. water I mean, flow you have to control yeah. or manage yeah. all those three in addition to all of the yeah, other so factors so. that uh, come into play right um uh, Sean Malita also you know this challenge of coastal communities understanding the potential uh, of seaweed you know to add to their income or to potentially even be a main source of income or for their family members to be part of this process while they may continue their main uh fishing um jobs how hard of a challenge is that to overcome who should be involved in kind of opening this up and getting people to say this is uh, something worthwhile pursuing yeah it's not a that much of a hard challenge if you look at it just from a practical aspect even right now what we're doing with our tenders farmer system because we want to make it accessible we want people to come join the network try to make try to make it work right so you know for example we have one farmer family right now so you know he does multiple jobs right he does i think he was doing several different jobs on the side yeah. and he's also doing seaweed because all you essentially need is roughly about 4 hours a day uh, of just you know going monitoring the lines looking through the seaweed so and it's very it's a very menial task because it's not like heavy labor or anything it's essentially you go through the lines just check if there's you know if they're healthy just shake the lines that's it so about 4 hours a day and the weekends are off you know so right. You, right. there's so much ways you can integrate you know your lifestyle into, into it. it and, and also not, make a not good not give income. up your you know whatever yeah, all the yeah, other things like, this guy was doing right. i think three different jobs i think you know right. other stuff as well and you know and he's doing seaweed on the side as well now and uh sorry anything uh yeah i think again when it comes to uh incentivizing farmers itself it's really to invest in making sure that they are sort of managed in the way where we can provide the right training for them because in the way that if we provide more oversight they're more incentivized to actually sort of do these sort of quote unquote menial tasks right they want to feel like their work is more than just like managing these lines itself it needs to feel like this is something that they generally have to do on a like sort of conceptual daily daily basis right yeah. um so i think that's really where, why our like sort of vis- visits are important and making sure that we are in touch with the sort of local entrepreneur on the ground and like make sure that you know things like language barrier isn't an issue for us by sort of communicating with locals and making sure we have partners that are on the ground that really understand sort of the cultural sort of uh barriers that we can sort of overcome in this way so these are uh definitely the things that we've uh, uh sort of overcome to like make this challenge possible so got it yeah um <coughs> yola right in the middle of the lost ingredients lab program right and uh can you give us a sense of uh how it's been what are you getting out of it what do you hope to get out of it uh process wise you know uh, how how is it kind of shaken things up uh, if at all yeah i mean for sure i think especially where we were at as a company and as a business 
it was the perfect timing and the perfect thing actually it was way better than you know it's more than what we even expected right to Definitely. be honest right yeah. because just the amount of the expertise and the connections we've been able to build through the program itself has been insane for us you know we have been able to you know make our dreams kind of come true in a way i remember when we were talking about our proposals we were like okay we want to get this expert from the fao infofish to come we wanted to you know work on a sensor technology so we can man- manage in real time you know uh, salinity and temperature and you know it's literally come to fruition uh, through the program so i think and it was also at a critical time because we were working on building a capacity uh, right malika yeah exactly so i think it was also at the perfect time where it came and also just the exposure in general and the network you know even talking with other uh, the companies within the program has been an eye opening experience we learned so much from you know our other peers in the program right we learned about the certifications we learned about possible integrations with factories you know and those yes. additional support itself has been you know uh, kind of crazy i mean i think especially given the sort of diversity of the pool of candidates itself really being able to learn from different agricultural companies in terms of their technology in terms of supply chain resilience that way we definitely learn given the stage that we are at how to sort of fail fast and cheap which is essential for us to pivot and scale uh in this case uh and r- really gaining access again like Chan said to the network again knowing the right sensor technology to allow us to then sort of leverage this in a way that we have an additional sort of verification uh, and then allowing us to not just be an SME but to have that sort of corporate level a uh, sense of technology that we can sort of uh pivot and show as a distinguishing factor for us as an up and coming seaweed company. Yeah. So. And I think uh, Malika what you said about uh being able to apply mature large company processors yes to to the stage you're at would be a real game changer, right? So whatever you can absorb and apply uh and even from the agricultural techniques, harvesting techniques that from the land if you can translate some of those into the ocean uh that could be very interesting as well definitely okay um what's the dream uh in terms of you know your uh, people have tried seaweed in sri lanka a few folks have found a way to make it work but for maybe lower value added applications uh, a lot of people have tried like you said and 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 not succeeded uh what's the dream for you guys uh where does this go where could it go uh yeah yeah i think honestly that comes back to me i think is the biggest lesson we have learned is to knock on the door of opportunity any door that we saw that's how we even got this phase even if there was a 1% chance something would work out we'd knock on all 100 doors because we knew at least one of them would open and you know sometimes most of the time in a way we were pleasantly surprised with the opportunities just by you know taking a shot right so i think where we want to go is we want to build a foundation first we want to show people that the potential of seaweed and then from there you know that's what we're kind of doing now with our seamoss gel and you know looking at all these other interesting avenues just knocking on the doors of opportunity to see where else we can take the business but the backbone is going to be the seaweed farm creating that quality and putting sri lanka on the map for seaweed letting them know okay there's high quality that can be consistency and it can be done feasibly those are the foundations of it and from that foundation we can build the pillars of value addition and also see where else we can take uh, you know uh, the company forward in terms of value addition having that backbone 
right malik and that's exactly that i couldn't have said it any better sean i think again when you talk about the backbone being the seaweed cultivation itself this is the backbone for providing communities within the coastal region with a uh, intense amount of sort of financial and security that's necessary for them in this way to not only integrate seaweed into the sort of culture of sort of work culture within coastal communities but also to see this as sort of this alternative income stream outside of fisheries and also to see it as almost this sort of again uh, a superfood option that that we seek to market not just within Sri Lanka uh, but also in a global scale level so this is definitely something yeah and i think again it's about also about the community base cuz for see the business of seaweed even if you look everywhere around the world even in the mature markets we don't see these huge machinery you know no. it's about the community it's about the coastal community it's embedded into the business it's baked into the dna of what seaweed is all exactly. around the world even if it's indonesia philippines whatever it's always comes down to the communities we don't have any machinery or anything like that even after all these years in this mature market and that's a huge thing for us as well because we see even and everyone's frolicking kind of to start this for example in zanzibar over i think in a couple of years over 2000 families have started you know doing seaweed farming indian india is rushing they have allocated crores of funding to different yeah. different states to do seaweed farming sometimes they'll match your investment one to one just to do seaweed farm because they are don't have enough supply because they have gone like in a way like okay we have so much value additions we don't have the supply right so everyone's rushing to do it so sri lanka i feel is so backward in that way but i know there's a lot of effort even from you know nakda and stuff now to develop this so why can't we you know make something so big out of it especially when we're surrounded by water you right but yeah. an island so I, what you're putting your finger on is that this could be a real strategic industry for sri lanka if it's you know planned out people are educated their concerns are allayed uh and then all this is the backing right the 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 support and again whether the government or you know those in charge will take it down that path is one thing but you guys are often running you know you're doing it from a very much an entrepreneurial base and building up from that not waiting for anybody to kind of uh wake up and say you know you guys should do this so i guess that's part of the challenge and and joy of being an entrepreneur as well um what have you learned about each other because you know you've known each other you said for you know over 20 years uh, but sometimes when you get into business there's new facets that you know because that the how have uh, how have your relationships developed the, uh, among the three of you as uh, not just as lifelong friends but now as uh, business partners yeah i think that's a really good question cuz for us it's like this you know friendship is one thing right but even you know when we were first doing the business and stuff when i when i was also thinking about it, i was like you know there has to be value and a synergy i think that's the key because you know some people sometimes they just want to work with their friends which is really good you know it's a very good sentiment right yeah. but you know that can often end badly sometimes or you know someone pulls more weight than the other and you know things often end badly so for us it was always about you know a team synergy and we i think we knew we had that you know being friends all right. like all these years so and right yeah, malik exactly it was kind of natural to us at that point that we knew that the team synergy that was there since the start would sort of translate into the business itself and we kind of make up for on flows in our own separate ways right i think the way that we look about it is like sean said the value is one thing but also the fact that we can communicate clearly in terms of the agenda in terms of the objectives in terms of our own personal goals 
is what really helped us sort of stand out in terms of uh, being a dynamic uh, trio of uh, three masters, as you said. So excellent, and so so that relationship, uh, it's not stressed the relationship; it's really deepened it and your understanding of each other has grown as 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 part of this process right i think i think that's like it's it's a multifaceted thing kind of because that was obviously not not it's never smooth sailing of right course, no. the good thing is we catch each other's weaknesses for example if i tell you like for me i'm i'm very into the research i love doing research understanding things and you know translating that scientific knowledge and stuff but you know to be honest my number side is not that good i'm not that very skilled when it comes to you know uh you know financial calculations you know stuff like that so that's why dasun is really good at that you know he really catches that aspect of it you know that's why it's like almost a perfect team like we, it wouldn't be us without each other yeah, right yeah. and then malika with you know your perspective uh and how you came in you know from you know with your background with berkeley as well and you know really expand our network and our horizons and also just talking together we see okay wait i didn't think of it like that mm-hmm. right yeah. and then mm-hmm. you know you catch that side right but you know there's also i think you know it's been difficult too right there are sometimes where you know production was bad okay why is this report this time it was really bad what went wrong and then it's like you know and it's kind of stressful and then you know sometimes you know because sometimes dasun is traveling sometimes you know malika is traveling right so sometimes you know it's hard to communicate and get on call right so then you know and when everything is seems bad sometimes then you know it really stresses you out and you're like oh why haven't you done this you know yeah. so it's not all smooth sailing i would say you know sometimes like, yo you didn't answer the call today yeah, yeah. like you know we were supposed to do this right and you know that happens but coming out of it we have come more stronger I, what course. do you think man yeah definitely yeah. i have to agree that's why you said communication is key in that sense right making sure that we can sort of rely on each other to in this case in terms of the fallbacks that we have make sure that we set out sort of the schedule sort of ensure that the commitments are sort of in place and yeah that's what helps us move forward right and so yeah. i think that's an important uh, maybe lesson for other friends looking to get into business because people just get into stuff you know without understanding strengths and weaknesses and then clarity of the roles and then being willing to hold each other accountable Uh, and i think you'll have that base to know you know it 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 it's personal and it's business and how do you navigate and and bring those two together right so i think that uh, again fantastic to hear how the three of you have uh, really you know you're on a on a it's been a long journey together as friends and now really as as entrepreneurs as well so uh fantastic uh, thanks for joining us and sharing your journey and all the very best as you build a seaweed platform for sri lanka Thank you for listening all the way to the end of this episode where we connected with one of the three garage companies which were part of the Lost Ingredients Lab. The Lost Ingredients Lab is a platform for Sri Lankan organic and regenerative agriculture and food sectors to integrate their value chains through innovation and collaboration. The initiative is formed under the Support to Small and Medium Enterprises in the Organic Agriculture Sector program. of the multi-donor action jointly co-financed by the European Union in Sri Lanka and the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development implemented by GIZ Sri Lanka through collaboration global opportunities for Sri Lanka's regenerative and organic food and agri sector will be strengthened and expanded